My name is Craig, and I'm the pastor here at Hope Jersey City. We thank you for being here with us this Easter morning where we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, This is what we do as Christians here, and we're so glad that you're here with us. This is the season where we celebrate this, what we say is the greatest event that has ever happened in human history. Um, The resurrection really is this culminating event that, that our faith, faith in Jesus Christ, Uh, really hangs on. So, two weeks ago, about two weeks ago or so, um, the world actually witnessed this groundbreaking moment. Um, Something that has been theorized for years. We all saw the picture of M87, the black hole. I don't know if if you guys saw it. It's beautiful. I watched the press conference because I love, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't know what it means, but I, I love it. Just, yeah. <laughs> but it was beautiful. Something so beautiful. And at the same time, yet so destructive. Right? There are some people who commentated about how this looks so much like the Eye of Sauron in Lord of the Rings. Right? I don't know if you guys saw that. It looks just like the Eye of Sauron. It's weird. And why they both look very eerily similar, they also occupy this vastly different space. One is seen as fact, truth, empirically uh, proven and discovered. And the other is categorized as part of fables and myths and legends. One is seen as truth. The, one is, the other is seen as a fairy tale from a novel. You probably know where I'm going. For many, the resurrection of Jesus Christ occupies that same space of myth, fable, and legend. There are no empirical evidence, right? People say to prove that it happened. No DNA evidence. No forensic sampling to prove that it happened. So, of course... It occupies the space of fairy tale. But in the Christian faith, we believe that this actually happened. Paul talks about it this way. He says, if the resurrection did not happen, then we're wasting our time. This is useless. Paul, who's one of the early witnesses of 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 Christianity, one of the early witnesses, he's saying this. If this did not happen, why am I wasting my time getting beaten? My friends are killed. Why? This is useless. useless. Our faith is futile, he says. So, of course, the resurrections continue to occupy this space of um, division or questioning or doubt or unbelief. And the interesting thing is not just for non-Christians, but also for Christians as well. Sometimes we struggle with with the belief whether this happened or not. So here's what we're going to do today. I'm going to try my best to answer this question about the resurrection. Did it really happen or not? 
And I'll do it by showing that it did happen in two ways. One, by showing that it is a historical event, and at the same time, a personal, intimate event. A personal event that we can attest to. So again, resurrection occupies the space of the most confounded element of Christianity, right? The, the idea that a man was raised from the dead and not merely resuscitated has made many of us to question the valid, validity of this faith. But some of us might not realize that even the very early witnesses of this event had this same doubt. They had a hard time believing that this actually happened. So I'm going to talk about that. How is this a historical event? Again, the followers of Jesus conveyed shock and surprise at the hearing of the news. And I'm going to show, this, show you this from reading the um, passage from John 20. So if you read with me, it will be in my back, and I'm going to Read, we'll, I'll read it for us from the screen because I forgot to put it here. <laughs> At least not the right one. This is what it says, John 20, verse 1. Um, and it's all different verses from that chapter. This is what it says. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that a stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, one at the foot. They asked the woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. In verse 18, Mary Mandolin went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus had appeared to them. So other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. But Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, 
reach your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's the reading of the word. Would you guys pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. Um, I pray you challenge us today. I pray you convict us today. I pray you speak through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope you've seen through that passage that um, the disciples of Jesus actually did not believe that he resurrected from the dead. I mean, who will? They didn't believe themselves. It's interesting because you would think in a story like this, especially if it's made up, that they would gloss over it, make it look a little bit more doctored, you know, look more um, beautiful for the readers. Because, of course, you guys know they're the saints, right? We uh, venerate them as saints, as the apostles. But we see in this scripture verse that these same people who we now, many of us now, we actually like, we venerate as saints, did not believe the resurrection happened. They had their doubts. These were the closest friends of Jesus who were with him for, for more than three years and yet could not believe. You see that their first assumption for the empty tomb was that Jesus' body was taken away or it was stolen. That was their first assumption. It was not that Jesus raised, was raised from the dead, but that he was taken, he was stolen. Verse 9, as we read it, it reiterates this fact that they did not understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to die and be raised again. Interesting fact. Even while Jesus was with them, he told them three times, it, it records, I will die, but I will rise again. But you see, if you, especially in Luke 18, verse 1, every time he would tell them, they did not understand what that meant. They didn't know what that meant. Just, it's kinda, I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you. Someone is talking to you and you don't know what they mean and you just pretend like you know what they're saying. Oh, yeah, 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 sure. It feels like that. <laughs> I do that all the time. <laughs> it's like you're talking to me and I'm like, oh, yeah, and... I, I didn't hear what you said. You get that awkward look. <laughs> anyway, so I'm sorry if I did that to you, but I try my best. But it's kind of like that idea. Just three times he told them, this is what's going to happen. Did not understand what he meant. And you see it in the scripture verse. Thomas, of all people, he said, I'm not going to believe unless I see with my own eyes touch with my own hands and feel those wounds, then I'll actually believe. That's why he's, I don't know if you might know, he's known as Doubting Thomas, right? He's well known for that. But that's very interesting. That's, for me, it's very puzzling that you find this in Scripture. Why? I think in order to understand this, you have, we have to kind of understand their cultural um, uh, mindset of the time, the worldview of that time. The worldview, just like now, is no one believed in the resurrection. 
in the Greco-Roman world, in the pagan world at that time, no one believed that a resurrection could actually happen. This is it. You're born, you live, you marry, you die, and that's it. We call it a day. No one believed that. In the Jewish world, the idea of the resurrection was actually, was, they had an idea of the resurrection, but the way they thought of, about it was, well, it's going to happen on, at the end of the world, whenever that will be. At the end of the world, you know, millions of years later, maybe not millions, but maybe tens of thousands, whatever it might be, as they thought about it, then everybody will be resurrected. So that's, the, that's kind of their worldview. That's the idea that they thought in their mind. So when they heard that Jesus was resurrected, it makes sense why they did not believe that he was resurrected. When they heard the news of the empty tomb, it did not resonate in them. Well, oh, yeah, he's alive. No, it's like, nope, he's not. Their dreams, their political aspirations for Jesus, because they wanted Jesus to be the king of Israel, they were all gone. Mary was weeping by the tomb. So it's very obvious in the scripture that they did not believe this was going to happen. So, of course, when they saw Jesus, when Thomas, I mean, you can even hear the cry in his voice. When Thomas saw Jesus, his words were, my Lord and my God. Shock and awe that this actually happened. And scholars write about this, that this shock, this awe that they had, is probably the reason for the explosive growth of Christianity. They write about this. The movement went from 20,000 people to over 25 million people in, in less than 200 years. Because this shock and awe blew their worldview, blew their mind that this actually did happen. So, of course, this probably makes sense in light of what happened. That the growth of Christianity just blew up because they were, they were in shock. Have you ever been shocked by anything? If you're a parent, you probably, when you first saw your first child, you're like, whoa. I cannot believe this is happening. <laughs> this is life. How in the world is this like shock? Right? And you can't, you, you can't even describe the feeling you had. Or maybe when you had your first job, shock and awe. It's like, wow. Right? And you're like, can't wait to tell your friends. I got my job. I'm making this money. This is great. Got your first house. Celebrate. I remember one time I was shocked. I was shocked because Caitlin, I heard Caitlin, my wife, before we're dating, she had a crush on me. It's like, what? <laughs> really? How? Oh, she has a crush on me. And what am I doing? I'm telling my friends. I'm like, oh, wow. Did you hear? She has a crush on me. Wow. It does something to us. 
And I think when we see it with these guys, with these disciples, with Mary, with the women who were coming, who went to the tomb, as is recorded in, in Luke, they were shocked. Now, the shock that they had was this. It's, it's much bigger than anything we probably experience because of this consequential nature of it. It's, it's consequential. It's huge. It's eternity. We have seen the resurrection with our own eyes. So Jesus comes into their world and breaks down all of their cultural expectation of him, all of their worldview convictions about him, totally shatters it. Does the resurrection break down our worldview? Does it push back against your convictions? I think it does. And that's why we have a hard time, some, some, we just have a hard time believing it. It's like, I, I can't believe this happened. I have to see it. I have to prove it. So what is our worldview convictions on God, resurrection? I think we need to answer that question. We need to diagnose what that is. Because I think in our world today, we've, and we've adopted a worldview that you might not even be aware of, but it's in all of us, whether you're a Christian or not. We've adopted this worldview. And it's, you know, it's just we live in a secular world. There is a worldview conviction of our world that we have adopted. The pervasiveness of secularism is in us. And the, uh, this ideolo- uh, ideology that we're bought into is the idea that we can find temporal satisfaction in material goods and in whatever I deem, or whatever I find significance in. We have adopted that, that worldview into, into our, our lives, and we might not even know it. Um, I hate to talk about this, but I have to. I don't know if you guys saw the Instagram um, preacher sneakers. It's viral now. You might not have seen it. If you've seen it, it's pretty funny. Um, you see pastors, this, this guy uh, who's anonymous, post pictures of pastors wearing expensive sneakers. It's pretty bad. It's, you know, $300 sneakers. $500 sneakers, $900 sneakers, $5,000 sneakers. I'm like, whoa, these are pastors. These are ministers. And I, I, I feel bad for saying it because I'm a pastor too, and I don't think I'm wearing that. <laughs> I'm not wearing something that's that expensive. But all, what I'm trying to say is this, is that whether you're Christian or not, we have bought into this idea, this secular culture that says we find our fulfillment, we find satisfaction, the things we have, things we do, things I own, in my job, whatever I find meaning. We've bought into 
this idea. Um, Charles Taylor in his book, Secular Age, um, which I just started, is a great book. Um, he talks about two things that, that kind of frames this, this, this secular idea in our world. First, he says, we've adopted this eminent framework, and we've adopted this exclusive humanism. And I'll explain that. Eminent framework just means that we have closed off any idea of the transcendence. So if you're born in this time and age, you're, you, you, the idea of transcendence probably is not as, it's not there. It just feels like what you see is, that's it, right? Imminence. It's just like what you see, the, our world is only built by natural orders, things we can prove empirically, things that we can observe, what I see, what I touch, that's it. We've adopted that framework. Again, Christian or non-Christian, we believe that. So questions about God are not really that interesting to us at all, not as much. Secondly, the exclusive humanism, which is what I've been explaining, is we bought into our own hype. We derive meaning and significance from what we want, what we need, what we desire. Now, this ideology, this, this culture that we, we've adopted, it bangs against the idea of the resurrection. Because we're, it's two different things. Transcendence, something's beyond us, this, in our world, the natural order of things. It bangs against that idea. This ideology is at war with the Christian faith, with the resurrection, because first, it denies the sacrificial message of the cross, which challenges our entitled sensibilities. It denies the sacrificial message of the cross, which is at war with, our, with where we find satisfaction and where we find fulfillment. Because the cross leads us to give those things up. And secondly, it reduces the resurrection um, event to a mythological status because of our refusal to acknowledge that something more powerful, something more mighty, something more sovereign is transcendent and more powerful than we are. It's interesting, even, again, like I mentioned, even Christians, we struggle, often struggle with this. Um, um, and that's why a lot of people are quick to dismiss, even Christians, this message of love, of message of resurrection, and they simply reduce it to a message of love. Like the whole message of Jesus is just love. <laughs> love, that's it. I wanted to sing a song right now, but I forgot what the song is. Song about love, right? That's what we care about, living in harmony and in love. This morning I saw an article by um, Nicholas Kristof, and it was interviewing Serene Jones, who is um, president of Union Theological Seminary. And she says this. She's like, those who claim to know whether or not it happened, the resurrection, those who claim to know whether 
it happened or not, are kidding themselves. But that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. Again, reducing it to a message of love. And again, an attempt, this is her attempt, or this is sometimes our attempt to humanize the activity of God in order to fit our prescribed worldview. But the reality is this, especially when we read the message, when we read the scripture, when we read the gospels, Jesus did not give us that middle option at all. He didn't give us this middle role that we have to settle for. Because if he did, then he's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's either Lord. C.S. Lewis acknowledges this in this famous quote. He says this, A man who merely who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. If he said the resurrection happened, he's not a great moral And it did not happen, he's not a great moral teacher. He, he's in fact, he says, he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. What is he saying? It's like we can't just take his messages and say, oh, yes. It's a message of love, but the resurrection, it's not possible. No, we have to either accept it all or just completely abandon it. Abandon it. We accept it all or we abandon it. So this is, the, this is where I want to land on. How can we now come fully to accept the resurrection. And by fully, I mean 100%. How can we actually fully believe it? First, we must challenge our worldview convictions. We must challenge our belief system. We must challenge where we find our significance in. This is what Paul says about this. He says in Colossians 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Challenge the philosophy of our world. Challenge it. I read an author said, he said, Often we're quick to challenge Christianity, then we are to challenge our own worldview. We're quick to challenge and doubt Christianity, yet we, we, we're not willing to doubt the, the secularism and the, 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 the cultural worldview of our world. So I, I ask you first, challenge it. And second, this is my last point, secondly, it's not only a historical event, but we also have an opportunity for a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus. 
if you read in the story account, like what we just read, so much of the eyewitness account stemmed from what? A personal encounter with Jesus. It was a personal, live encounter with Jesus Christ. Mary did not believe it until she saw him. She was weeping by the tomb. Then she saw Jesus. Thomas did not believe it until he saw him. The disciples did not believe it until they saw him. And Paul surmises this idea in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, For what I have received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, more than 500 brothers and sisters, most of whom are still living. He's challenging his hearers, the, the Corinthian church, to go check, check it out. They're still alive, people who actually saw Jesus. Go check it out for yourself. Then he appeared to James, to the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to Paul. This is what he's trying to say. is The main activity of the resurrected Jesus in Scripture is to personally encounter Jesus, encounter him. He doesn't force his way on you at all, but he meets you with the questions that you have, with the puzzles that you have about him. He meets you there. The same resurrected Jesus wants to meet us. He wants to meet us. Um, I remember, and I'll probably share more about this later, but there was a, a, a couple of seasons, well, almost three years, where I struggled with doubt. Um, before we planted this church, like a year and a half ago, I was a worship leader. I did music at uh, the church I was at. And I remember going up in front of everyone and just singing. But I could not believe what I was singing. It just could not. It just felt like, this, this is weird. Like, I'm able to sing and people just sing. And like, are we just conjuring this up? Is this something we're just doing and just conjuring? And I struggled with that. Even when we started this church, I struggled. Just coming to preach, to share. That, oh, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is alive. I struggled. Why am I saying that? I'm saying it's okay to doubt. But in your doubting, you seek, you search. Don't doubt and just abandon and, and leave it alone and just walk away. Yeah, this is not, no, you doubt and you find out. Again, Jesus wants to personally encounter us with the truth. And if we don't, if we just neglect it, again, he's not going to force his way on you. So even as I doubted, I was still, God, if, please, I, I don't want to quit this job. I don't want to do this. If you are here, if you are alive, please, encounter me. Please. And honestly, in the last couple of weeks, this, this last couple of weeks, where just blown me away. Just 
like, whoa, weeping, tearing. I can't believe, oh, yes, you are real. I'm sorry for not taking this seriously. You are real. Again, I'm saying this. In your doubting, you search. In your unbelief, you seek. Because Jesus is looking to encounter you in your doubts. I love what this, uh, reading this book by T.F. Torrance called The Incarnation. Just so good. Like, so good. <laughs> Sorry. But I'm just like, I'm just still in the second chapter. Just reading and rereading, reading and rereading, because it's just so good and rich. Describing how Jesus, the way we can actually encounter Jesus. It's not, sometimes we think it's hocus pocus. But what we see is that the historical Jesus that came into, into our world is the only way we can actually encounter this Jesus. This God who is so transcendent, what does he do for him to reach his people? He comes into their world. And now even through his spirit and his power, we can encounter him as well. But this is what he said in one of the quotes he said in the book. The presentation of Jesus Christ is based on the certainty and seen in the light of the fact that he rose again from the dead. And he's ever present to his church through his spirit. They bear witness to his majesty. We have seen the Lord. This is what the disciples kept saying. We have seen the Lord. The whole account of Jesus Christ is illuminated, shaped, and permeated with the glory and revelation that break out clearly in the resurrection. The account of Jesus into our world, the fact that we can know that he is truly God, is this account of the resurrection. The glory and the revelation of who Jesus is breaks out clearly in the resurrection. So my friends, when we search and when we find, this is what happens. Our worldview is challenged. Our worldview becomes this. Jesus is risen. I thought it was impossible. I thought it could never happen. Jesus is risen. We have sin, seen the Lord. And because he is risen, it means that he's forgiven me, he's accepted me. It means that God is inviting us to be part of his family. It means that the walls of hostility are broken. And that's why we can come here from different, different cultures, different backgrounds. We can come here because Jesus is Lord. He breaks down those walls. And I want to challenge you. As you search, I want to challenge you to search. Whether you're doubting, even whether you're not, to search. And allow the real Jesus to encounter you. Search him and know him, and he will prove to you that he is the Lord God Almighty who is risen from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm so grateful for you.
I know many of us here might be struggling with doubts, might, might not find this appealing or might not find this true. God, I'm praying that you would reveal yourself to, to your people who you care about, who you love. And I ask that you help them to continue to search so that you will find them. That's the beautiful thing, is that we don't find you. You find us. In our mess, in our sins, in our waywardness, you find us. Let this be so, God, for every one of us here, that we may all declare that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is risen from the dead.